Before we get into this episode, a friendly reminder that one of the best ways that you can support this podcast is by sharing it with friends. The second best way is to go join my Patreon at patreon.com slash studies. There you will get bonus episodes. For example, today there's a bonus episode up all about Nancy Reagan. You'll also get some of my news breakdowns. You'll get invitations to virtual learning sessions that are like live Zoom sessions where me and friends will come on and teach you about something cool from history. It's really great and it's a really easy way to show your support and make sure that I can keep making more episodes. Thanks. Y'all, when I tell you that I have been dreading this episode, seriously, the 1980s is, in my opinion, the weirdest decade in recent American history because we have such conflicting ideas, or for some of us, actual just memories, about what the 80s were all about. And I'm just going to come out and say it just from the beginning. If you were a white, middle class, or wealthier person, then this decade is probably really nostalgic for you. It's Steven Spielberg and shopping malls and crimped bangs. It might be the decade in which you bought your first home and started your family. I was born in the late 1980s, but even I feel emotional showing my son the Goonies or hearing a song from a John Hughes movie. But keep in mind that if you were not white, or if you were poor, or if you were gay, the list goes on, the 1980s might represent something very different. It was a decade when seemingly the country abandoned any sense of obligation to help those less fortunate or historically marginalized. Civil rights was over and you've had a decade to catch up, now you're on your own. The problem isn't systemic, it's about personal accountability, maybe you should just make different choices. Blue collar workers and union jobs are dragging us down, we need to compete with the rest of the world. Gay men are dying of some mysterious disease, but it must be God's punishment for their life of sin. The hyper-individualism and competition of the 80s feels really lonely when compared with the shared struggle of the 30s and 40s or the communal movements of the 60s and 70s. Now, depending on where you lie on the political spectrum, you might not like this interpretation of the 1980s. And that's fair, and that's why I say I was sort of dreading making this episode. But in my own interpretation, the 1980s is really another Gilded Age moment for us, and almost perfectly 100 years after the first one began. It was Rockefellers and yuppies, electrified cities and car phones, Carnegie Theater and MTV, Standard Oil and trickle-down economics, tenements and welfare queens, settlement houses and AIDS wards, a glistening layer of gold on top covering up problems that are going to plague the country for decades to come. I genuinely hate talking about the 80s because I can't say anything without a huge swath of the country disagreeing with me and kind of being right. Our individualism reached an apex in the 1980s so that every household had a different experience and has different memories and understandings of this decade. But we have to talk about the 1980s because honestly, it's the origin story for most topics, debates, issues we're facing today. So today's episode is all about the 1980s or, Dad, maybe don't listen to this episode. This is Antisocial Studies. I'm Emily Glankler. Settle in and let's go back in time. Act 1, A Clash of Values. Listen, anytime anyone tries to simplify the political spectrum of this country into two sides, it's problematic. But with that in mind, here are the two political views that every American must choose between. I'm just kidding. 
The 1980s is really the first moment in American history when we see our current political divide. Remember back in the early 1800s when I was trying to explain like Federalists versus Democratic Republicans and then God help us the Whigs, who were they, right? The Civil War era has really confused a lot of people because Lincoln was a Republican, what? And internet trolls have been dining out on that one for years. But by the 1980s, a Republican and a Democrat are for the most part settled into the two parties we know today. Of course, they're shifting again, like they always do, but let's just oversimplify it for a second. In the 1980s, most liberals were continuing to carry the banner of the New Deal and LBJ's Great Society. They believed the government should regulate the economy, especially to protect people from corporations and to redistribute some of the wealth via progressive taxes on wealthier Americans. They also tended to believe it was the government's job to provide a safety net for the most disadvantaged Americans through programs like Medicaid, welfare, Social Security, etc., and to secure and protect the rights of all Americans, sometimes at the expense of states' rights on issues related to race, gender, bodily autonomy, that sort of thing. Now, the 1980s conservative is a newer collection of various groups that formed into a Republican coalition led by Ronald Reagan. In general, modern conservatives want to limit the power of the federal government, especially when it comes to regulation of the economy, which they see as an unnecessary obstacle that makes businesses less efficient. Most conservatives tend to believe that individuals, local communities, and businesses are better able to solve the problems that we face, and federal interference just gets in the way more often than not. And you have to consider the importance of a new region at this time, the Sun Belt. World War II had sparked somewhat of an industrial revolution in the South and Southwest thanks to wartime factories. So just in the way that Northeastern industrialists of the Gilded Age wanted laissez-faire policies, sometimes to a fault, new industrialists in the South had a reason to want the federal government out of their business so they could continue to grow. It's easy to oversimplify Southern Democrats' shift to conservatism by talking about, you know, Nixon's Southern strategy and the civil rights movement. But we also have to consider that as industry shifted from Northern factories to the South, there was also an economic argument among a lot of Southern former Democrats for a smaller federal government. But arguably the most important component of this new conservative coalition was evangelical Christians. And this group in many ways is like the secret sauce of modern conservatism. So let's remind ourselves for a second of where they've been for the last few decades. I mean, really up until the progressive era, right? Turn of the 20th century, Christianity was so deeply embedded in our politics that it would have been weird to say that one party was more or less influenced by Christian values. They were kind of just everywhere. But things started to shift around 1920. Remember, more Americans were living in cities where they encountered the always increasing diversity of city life. Women's roles changed dramatically with the 19th Amendment, and the country started to look outward as it faced bigger global issues. Basically, the country shifted from rural, family-based communities to huge, diverse, worldly cities, and many evangelical Christians felt left behind. Their embarrassment during the Scopes trial in the 1920s on evolution convinced many of them that national politics was just not the right environment for them and their cause, at least as an organized movement. And then, of course, they found plenty of purpose supporting their own communities through the Great Depression and World War II and warning against the ever-imminent atheistic communist threat. But by the 1960s, just like many black Republicans, most famously Jackie Robinson, felt like their party was not doing enough to support their civil rights, evangelical Christians, who had often voted Democrat, Southern Democrat mostly, felt like their party wasn't respecting their beliefs. As the country started to sanction Roe v. Wade, they passed the Gun Control Act of 1968, and they forced the integration of private religious schools. 
So just as there were great political organizations on the liberal side of the 60s and 70s, there was also a growing conservative movement amongst boomers. While hippie boomers had Students for a Democratic Society and SNCC, conservatives had the Young Americans for Freedom. While feminists had Now and Miss Magazine, Phyllis Schlafly created the Eagle Forum, while televangelists founded the Moral Majority to back conservative candidates. And it paid off in 1980 with the so-called Reagan Revolution. In general, conservatives were just far more organized as a political movement by the 1980s. Another modern evolution of American politics that came around this time was the rise of think tanks. Like So many of my students and, frankly, fellow adults don't realize that modern politicians very rarely write their own laws or do their own research. The first think tank, the Heritage Foundation, was created in 1981 because of conservatives' frustration that supposedly conservative leaders, like Nixon, for example, had ended up actually supporting a lot of liberal policies. Their first report included 2,000 specific policy recommendations that would move the country in a more conservative direction, and Reagan implemented a lot of these recommendations and put many members of the Heritage Foundation in his administration. Now, whatever you feel about this, to me, it's just evidence that the conservatives are doing a better job at professionalizing politics. Over the next few decades, we're going to see this continuing trend. The conservative movement is most of the time a statistical minority, but it is going to grow itself into a powerful coalition of hyper-focused political movements that are willing to unite around a common platform and like support each other's goals. This is the coalition that Reagan is going to ride in on in the 1980 election. And to be fair, Jimmy Carter was one of the weakest incumbent candidates in recent history. But Reagan, a former actor, was also the great communicator. His relentless optimism and constant use of the word freedom every time he spoke helped him win 489 electoral votes to Carter's 49. But before we talk about Reagan's presidency as a whole, I really think that nothing epitomizes the impact of this new far-right, conservative Christian coalition better than the president's response, or lack thereof, to the AIDS crisis. Although we now realize that the virus had reached the U.S. by 1970, it wasn't until 1981 that the CDC first made note of clusters of medical curiosities impacting small groups of gay men. A San Francisco paper called it gay pneumonia, but within one year, it was officially identified as acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, or AIDS. By 1983, scientists had isolated the retrovirus that caused the disease, HIV, human immunodeficiency virus. So in short, HIV is contracted through sex, blood transfusions, pregnancy, breastfeeding, or sharing needles with someone who has the virus. And over time, the virus attacks and weakens the immune system until a person's blood cell count drops below a certain number, in which case the disease has progressed to AIDS. Because the disease seriously weakens your immune system, most people die from complications relating to AIDS, like they end up with pneumonia and their body is just unable to fight it off. And even though the disease was most prominent in the 1980s amongst the gay community, it can be contracted by anyone. Okay, so what did the Reagan administration do about the growing epidemic? Nothing. And actually kind of less than nothing. They trivialized it. When asked by a reporter about the gay plague in 1983, the White House press secretary joked, I don't have it, do you? To much like homophobic laughter. It's really important to note that experts realized 
incredibly early on that this disease was not exclusive to gay men, right? Anyone could contract the disease. Like female partners of HIV positive men had already contracted the virus. A young Dr. Anthony Fauci working at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases wrote an article warning that people should not assume that they were safe just because they weren't gay. That paper was rejected for being, quote, too alarmist. It's sad, but I mean, we've just lived through a pandemic and it kind of makes sense. This scary, strange, unknown sickness is spreading and we don't know why or how. You want to feel safe and you can feel safe if you convince yourself that it can only happen to other people, especially other people who are ostracized and villainized by much of the country already. For some context, the gay rights movement and the bravery of gay men living openly in public was incredibly new and mostly isolated to a few major cities like San Francisco and New York that had developed a robust community. The Stonewall riots in 1969 had brought attention to the oppression of the gay community, but to most Americans, especially outside of those major urban centers, it was kind of a blip, right? Like a bunch of gay people complaining that they couldn't dance at a club. I did a whole special episode about this up on my YouTube channel on Stonewall that you should go check out. Disco also had been demeaned by mostly cishet men who declared the black and gay art form as dead. Even within the gay rights movement, there had been tons of division. Are lesbians included? What about transgender people? So for a lot of Americans, the HIV AIDS crisis is really the first time that they're hearing about the gay community really in any sort of sustained way. And at the moment, it's just that they're dying and people are laughing about it. When the HIV AIDS epidemic ravaged the community, over 100,000 Americans died during that decade. This could have been an opportunity to shine light on a historically closeted group. A leader, especially, frankly, a first couple who came from the world of Hollywood and had many friends who were known to be gay, they could use this terrible disease to change public attitudes and focus on the humanity of the gay community. I mean, hell, as governor, Reagan had opposed a ballot initiative that would ban gays and lesbians from teaching in public schools. Instead, this crisis was used by conservatives in Reagan's administration as a talking point, as proof of the moral decline of the country. Basically, they argued that gay men were being punished by God for living a sinful life. Communications director and culture war instigator Pat Buchanan said, quote, The poor homosexuals, they have declared war upon nature, and now nature is exacting an awful retribution. In 1987, which the HIV AIDS crisis has been raging for seven years by this point, Reagan told a biographer, quote, Maybe the Lord brought down this plague because illicit sex is against the Ten Commandments. President Reagan never publicly said the word AIDS until 1985, and his first major speech about the disease came in 1987, after 21,000 Americans had already died. In a shroud of fiscal conservatism, he cut the budget of public health agencies during this time, including the CDC. And what's really fascinating about this is that behind the scenes, his own family was urging Reagan to take the disease more seriously. Nancy Reagan's closest friends were gay men. Her decorator stayed at the White House with his partner, possibly the first same-sex couple to officially be personal guests of the White House. When her old friend Truman Capote was put in jail for disorderly conduct, read being gay, Nancy used her influence through Reagan's chief of staff to get him released. Their son, Ronald Jr., or Ron, was literally at the time a ballet dancer in New York City observing the epidemic firsthand. In 1987, the same year that his dad is talking about the Lord bringing down this plague, Ron Jr. appeared in a TV commercial criticizing his dad's lack of response, saying, quote, The U.S. government isn't moving fast enough to stop the spread of AIDS. Write to your congressman, and then he smiles at the camera, or to someone higher up. 
He and his mother both pressured the president for years to ignore his conservative political advisors and his evangelical voter base and do more for the cause. But he didn't. Reagan's attitude on the disease only really changed when Rock Hudson was revealed to be dying of AIDS. Hollywood's most handsome and most closeted star had been a friend of theirs and attended a state dinner as a guest where it was noticed that he looked gaunt. Nancy herself sent Rock Hudson some photos from the event along with a note encouraging him to go see a doctor because of a red spot that she had noticed in one of the photos. He did, and it was because of this doctor visit that he discovered he had AIDS kind of because of Nancy Reagan. Now, it's really telling that Reagan and much of the country didn't really care about a disease killing thousands of gay men until it killed a traditionally masculine, famous, handsome movie star. But even when Nancy and others took on causes to help AIDS victims, they focused mostly on children or recipients of blood transfusions, innocent, quote unquote, victims, as opposed to gay men who were seen as somehow culpable in their own illness. Eventually, Reagan kind of turned around. He gave an awkward and not great speech at the American Foundation for AIDS Research at the behest of their friend Elizabeth Taylor, and he commissioned a full report by the Surgeon General, although the same day he announced this report, he submitted a budget that reduced federal spending on AIDS research and care programs. When the Surgeon General eventually released his report, he refused to send it first to the president's cabinet for approval because he knew it would get watered down and politicized. The bombshell report released in 1986 projected that 270,000 Americans would contract the disease by 1991. And really importantly, it explicitly educated people and explained how it was transmitted. This was the largest mass mailing in American history. They sent the report out to all 107 million households across the country. Kind of amazing when you think about it. There was a commission created by Reagan towards the end of his presidency to investigate and recommend steps the government should take. Again, a full like six or seven years into the epidemic. It came back reporting a, quote, distinct lack of leadership from the federal government. But Reagan ignored most of the committee's recommendations. Now, we'll move on. But it's hard to say how another president in the same position would have acted, right? I mean, this was a brand new, unheard of crisis. Although... I just, like, have a hunch that Jimmy Carter, our humanitarian-in-chief, would have been a far better leader for this specific crisis. And we'll never know. What is clear, though, and what I wanted to make clear by talking about this, is that identity politics aren't just about debates and lofty discussions. They impact real people's lives, and sometimes deaths. So as political commentators discussed how to spin the crisis to suit their narrative of, quote, moral decline caused by a liberal era, and as press secretaries made homophobic jokes— Tens of thousands of people were dying. Now, I also want to talk more about Nancy Reagan because she's kind of fascinating, but we don't have time here. So go on to Patreon and you'll find a whole bonus episode about Queen Nancy, her Hollywood background, and of course, every millennial's favorite memory, just say no. For now, let's talk about what else was happening during the Reagan years. Act two, the Reagan revolution. Okay, so there's a lot to be said and a lot that has been said about Ronald Reagan. Like it's rare to have a historical figure get mythologized so quickly. It was almost happening while he was president. If you're interested in history, politics, or current events, you probably already have some sort of an opinion about Reagan's presidency. And I'm not here to change that. For now, I do wanna just focus on the two linchpins of his platform and really the modern conservative platform supply-side economics, and defense spending. 
But first off, let's get this out of the way. By today's standard in 2023, Ronald Reagan would be a moderate Republican. He famously worked alongside a Democratic Congress. He had regular happy hours with Democratic Speaker of the House Tip O'Neill after a long day fighting it out in the political arena. He was really still a traditional politician. Compromise was better than nothing. Reagan also did little to actually undo most of the New Deal and Great Society programs. And I'm not implying that he supported those or strengthened those programs, but he wasn't really interested in tearing down liberal institutions that had already been built. Although I might argue he ended up doing just that, albeit in a slower, more capitalist way. And I'll explain in a minute. Now, the core of Reagan's domestic agenda was economic freedom, which really means lower taxes and fewer regulations. During his presidency, the top tax rate went from 70% to 28%. His administration also struck a huge blow to the labor movement when he fired 11,000 air traffic controllers on strike. The idea here is really critical to understanding conservative economic policy today, and it's known by many names, supply-side economics, trickle-down economics, or simply Reaganomics. The idea is that the best way to stimulate the economy is to cut taxes and other regulations that make doing business more expensive, especially for those toward the top of the economic hierarchy. So let's take an example. Let's say I own HEB. For those not in Texas, I'm so sorry that you don't know what it is to love a grocery store with all your heart, but I love HEB. The idea is that if I, the owner of HEB, have to pay less in taxes, for me personally and for my business, and if other regulations are scrapped, now I basically just have more money to invest in my business and its surrounding economy. I could open more stores, I could hire more workers, make more in-store tortillas, you name it. By putting more money back in my hands, the business owner, I can invest it back into the economy. Now, let's compare this with an FDR liberal, right? Like it's the Great Depression and we're trying to figure out how to stimulate the economy. The liberal argument was that the government itself should build programs and support systems that can get people back to work, send them out planting trees or building bridges, for example, and that they can make sure that they have enough money to support themselves and their families even when they aren't working, like Social Security. Well, now, in the 1980s, we're coming off a period of stagflation, but we have a new approach. Instead of the government being the one to create jobs and build social programs, it would be better left to individuals, local communities, and business owners. As Reagan put it, quote, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Okay, so it's been over 40 years since Reaganomics was implemented, and we're all asking the question, did it work? Well, I, it depends on what metrics you're using to measure. After a short-term recession early in his presidency, inflation did drop and the overall GDP and the stock market boomed. Like, the U.S. economy definitely grew in the 1980s and beyond. But while the overall economy was growing, wages stayed stagnant and genuinely just like have not risen since the 80s. Deregulation led to the corporatization of American business. Small and medium-sized businesses often couldn't compete with large national companies. And here's the fairest assessment I can give about supply side or trickle down or whatever you want to call it economics. It does grow the economy overall, but the only groups who are directly benefiting from that growth are those at the top. By the mid-1990s, the richest 1% of Americans controlled 40% of the nation's wealth, and that amount had doubled over the last 20 years. And I think we all know why this happens, right? Like any student that I explain this to for the first time can identify the problem within five seconds. If my taxes and spending to keep up with regulations are cut, yeah, I can invest that money back into my business and hire more workers, pay them better, make more tortillas, whatever. 
but I also can keep that money for myself or reward investors or buy a second or third or fourth home, right? Like we've ended up back full circle in the Gilded Age. And this is where I want to come back to my point earlier about Reagan's impact on the liberal agenda. His administration cut taxes, which remember means basically cutting the budget of the U.S. government. But federal spending increased during his presidency, mostly due to a massive increase in defense spending. More on that in a second. So across his presidency, the national debt tripled from $738 billion to $2.1 trillion. And from this moment on, Reagan gifted every conservative with the greatest counterargument to any liberal proposal. How are you going to pay for it? Think about it. By cutting taxes and increasing the national debt by spending more on the military, he basically fireproofed the conservatives for the next 40 years. Let's say a liberal president comes in and proposes expanding a social program like healthcare or some new infrastructure. All a conservative has to ask is, well, how are you going to pay for it? The liberal now has one of two answers. Either they're going to raise taxes or they're going to take money from the largest part of our federal budget, the military. So even though Reagan was relatively moderate compared with conservative candidates today, his economic policy set the stage for the slashing of liberal domestic programs for the next two generations after his presidency. Was this intentional? I mean, I don't think so from Reagan personally, right? He was one of our most hands-off presidents. But did some of his conservative advisors understand that they were setting up a new paradigm that would forever brand their side as the party of fiscal responsibility, if you just don't count military spending, and force liberals to be seen as the party of big spending and more taxes? Yeah, totally. And so far, it has worked. The Reagan years also firmly aligned the Republican Party with patriotism and the military. Like, think about it. LBJ, a liberal Democrat, had been the face of military expansion and war to fight communism abroad, while Nixon was the candidate calling to de-escalate conflict with our enemies. It wasn't always cut and dry. But the Reagan administration called for a massive spending increase to strike the final blow against the Soviet Union. Okay, let's back up for a second, because we haven't talked about the Soviet Union in much detail in a long time. Like, what have they been doing, right? And that's kind of easy, because they've kind of been doing the same thing we've been doing, right? So all the way back to the 40s and 50s were spent building up their power as the leader of the communist sphere while we established ourselves as the dominant capitalist economy. The 1960s saw us both on the brink of nuclear war, and then the Soviets had to begin dealing with unrest in their home sphere, epitomized by the Prague Spring in 1968. Oh hey, Eastern European hippies! By the end of the 1970s, the Soviets were beginning their own destructive, unwinnable war in Afghanistan, while anti-communist movements across the Soviet bloc threatened their power at home. Their economy, which peaked in 1970, was staying afloat mostly just thanks to the high price of oil and, frankly, the strong arm of the state. But by the 1980s, they were clearly unable to respond quickly to the increasingly complex and global international economy. Late Soviet leaders like Gorbachev attempted to reorient their economy to be slightly more flexible with programs like perestroika, but it ended up opening the floodgates of opinion and unrest. So why does Reagan get credit for winning the Cold War? And honestly, I think a lot of it is that speech he made at the Berlin Wall. Like, side note, the wall came down when George H.W. Bush was president, but whatever. It just goes to show the power of branding and a good speech. But while I definitely don't think Reagan or anything the U.S. did in the 1980s is the primary reason the Soviet Union collapsed, I do think that our ramped up defense spending could go in a long list of nails in their proverbial coffin. 
You see, before Reagan, we had been in an era of detente, started by Nixon, of all people. We signed strategic arms limitation treaty treaties and kind of agreed to not lead the world into an apocalypse anytime soon. But Reagan came in and said, yeah, screw that. I'm going to call them the evil empire and put missiles in space. The 1980s saw one of the largest military buildups in American history, $1.5 trillion intended to bankrupt the Soviet Union as they tried to keep up. In just his first term, Reagan spent more on defense than Nixon, Ford, and Carter combined. He spent more than our spending during both the Korean and Vietnam Wars combined. A series of war games, basically practice drills, held in Western Europe in 1983 were so realistic that the Soviets almost responded with an attack. To be fair, Reagan was a young boy during the JFK era, right? He didn't remember the Cuban Missile Crisis. How could he have known? Oh, what's that? Reagan was 51 years old during the Cuban Missile Crisis? Reagan himself was older than President Kennedy? Oh my god, I always forget how old Reagan was. I mean, he and Harriet Tubman were literally both alive at the same time. So anyway, one of the most famous parts of his defense plan was the Strategic Defense Initiative. The idea was to develop weapons that could intercept incoming missiles in space. He literally called it Star Wars. And now, sure, this would technically violate existing anti-ballistic missile treaties. And yeah, experts at the time told Reagan that this wasn't possible. Did he listen? We're not sure, but the Soviets didn't know if we had the technology to do this. So they were forced to keep spending money on their own military technology right at the time they should have been, you know, quelling unrest at home. It really makes me wonder, like, what if the Soviets had done this exact same thing to us during the 1960s? Would we have made it out of that decade alive if they had put more pressure on us as we escalated in Vietnam and had civil rights protests at home? In addition to military technology, Reagan also reinvigorated U.S. support for guerrilla groups fighting to overthrow communist or pro-Soviet governments around the world. The U.S. sent hundreds of millions of dollars to Afghan guerrilla groups, known collectively as the Mujahideen, resisting the Soviet invasion. These groups included, checks notes, oh right, Al-Qaeda and a young upstart known as Osama bin Laden. Whoops. Perhaps most famously, the Reagan administration brokered a secret and very illegal deal to sell weapons to Iran and use that money to fund a rebel group known as the Contras in Nicaragua. Okay, hold up. Iran? Like, the Islamic regime that very recently held 52 U.S. citizens hostage for 444 days and called America the devil? We sold them weapons? Yeah, we did. And then we took that money and funneled it into the rebel movement that Congress had specifically banned any part of the U.S. government from supporting because they were, by all accounts, terrorists committing human rights atrocities in support of the ex-dictator who had just been overthrown. Man, this episode really takes me back to the early days of the Cold War. There was a huge investigation when this illegal deal came to light, known as the Iran-Contra scandal. It was discovered that Reagan did approve the arms sales to Iran, but there was no proof that he knew that that money was being diverted to Nicaragua. The guy who took most of the blame was a U.S. Marine Colonel Oliver North, who's now in prison. Wait, no. He was, until very recently, the president of the NRA. What might have been a huge blow to another president's reputation just buoyed Reagan's credentials as a take-no-prisoners anti-communist. Now, behind closed doors, his administration was pushing reforms and treaties with the Soviet Union, like the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces or INF Treaty in 1987, but publicly he was traveling to Berlin, standing in front of the wall, and challenging Gorbachev by name to restore democracy and human rights. And of course, 
General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. When Reagan left office, the military was strong, the overall economy was booming, and the USSR appeared to be making steps toward democracy. It won't be until his successor's presidency that the Soviet Union collapses and the Cold War officially ends, but it can be argued that tough-talking, big-spending Reagan pushed the Soviets to the edge as they struggled with more long-term, systemic problems within. So Reagan left the White House at the age of 77 with a decent approval rating of 63%. The upcoming collapse of the Soviet Union and the 1990s economic boom thanks more to the rise of the internet than any specific policies, is going to go a long way in cementing Reagan's popularity, especially among moderates and conservatives. He's going to be a tough act for any Republican to follow, much less a successor with the middle name Herbert. Act 3. The 80s ended in 1992. If we're looking at presidents who were in the White House during chaotic moments in world history, I'd make a strong case for George H.W. Bush. The collapse of the Soviet bloc, Tiananmen Square protests in China, Rodney King, a whole war with Iraq. But let's back up, because I feel like H.W. gets squeezed between Reagan and Clinton, so let's give him his biography moment. Honestly, Bush Sr. had the most robust political experience of any presidential candidate since Teddy Roosevelt. He was the son of a Connecticut senator. He was the youngest pilot in Navy history, completing 58 missions in the Pacific during World War II. And one of them was done in a burning plane where he completed the mission before ditching into the sea. He graduated from Yale, moved to Texas, where he became a millionaire in the oil industry. He served in the House of Representatives for Texas before being appointed as Nixon's ambassador to the United Nations. He was director of the CIA under Ford, and then, of course, Reagan's vice president. Like, that's one hell of a resume. And in 1988, he was running against a non-war hero liberal nerd named Michael Dukakis. One interesting note about the Democratic Party in 1988 was that for a while we had a serious contender to be the first black presidential candidate in the Reverend Jesse Jackson. Remember that Shirley Chisholm was the first black person to run for president. A civil rights activist, Jackson had already made a good showing in the 1984 Democratic primaries, and in 1988 he won 21% of the vote to be his party's nominee. The 1988 presidential election was interesting because it was the first time in 20 years that there wasn't an incumbent on the ticket. And in a lot of ways, this election mirrored what we're going to see with presidential politics moving forward. Bush focused on the economic legacy of Reagan and being tough on crime while calling out Massachusetts Governor Dukakis as an elitist liberal who was out of touch. I mean, it's coming from the son of a Connecticut senator who went to Yale, but whatever. An unfortunate characteristic of this election was negative campaign ads. Famously, Bush highlighted a black man named Willie Horton, who had been on a prison furlough in Massachusetts when he committed rape and murder during Dukakis' time as governor. Now, there's a few issues here. For one, the prison furlough program, 
which was attacked by Republicans as evidence that Democrats were soft on crime, was actually started by Dukakis's Republican predecessor. And then there's also just the blatant racism of making one black man the face representing the vast issue of crime in America. And this was coming on the heels of the Reagan years, wailing about quote-unquote welfare queens, specifically black women taking advantage of liberal social programs, and the war on drugs that clearly targeted communities of color and their drugs of choice, while mostly ignoring the Wolf of Wall Street finance bros making cocaine use the stuff of legend. But I digress. H.W. Bush was also the first presidential candidate who's using the adjective liberal as an insult. This is a really simple but effective sign of the changing political landscape. Like, we are now firmly in a conservative era when even the Democratic candidate is going to have to distance himself from historic liberals like FDR and LBJ to gain traction. Bill Clinton is going to be the king of this. Okay, so I really like John Green from Crash Course, his assessment of the Bush senior presidency. He calls it a, quote, weird interruption of a larger narrative because Beyond the campaign, things are actually like pretty calm in domestic politics. Congress was controlled by Democrats that worked fairly well with the Republican president. They passed the historic Americans with Disabilities Act. They expanded funding for Head Start and welfare programs. And they established the right to 12 weeks of family medical leave. I mean, unpaid, of course. The country entered a recession in 1990 that was probably inevitable just due to the slow end of the Cold War and reduction in defense spending that had been ramped up under Reagan. 4.5 million people lost their jobs during this recession, and even recent college graduates struggled to find work. I wonder what that's like, says Emily, who graduated college in 2008. Now, this led to the most ironic moment in Bush Sr.'s presidency when he raised taxes. I mean, he literally raised the top bracket's tax rate from 28 to 31 percent, but this lost him support, especially amongst libertarians in the Republican Party. And it was especially embarrassing because he had very famously campaigned saying, Read my lips. No new taxes. Read my lips. No new taxes. It was like a meme before memes were a thing. Most of the excitement, so to speak, was really happening abroad during these four years. The Berlin Wall fell in 1989, the same year that student protesters were met with tanks in Tiananmen Square in China. This was all captured live, by the way, via a young 24-hour news network called CNN. Anti-Soviet revolutions erupted across Europe. Some had been ongoing underground movements for years, like in Poland. And the USSR officially dissolved in 1991. The end of the Cold War is going to bring with it a new identity crisis. Like, who are we now if we're not fighting communists around the globe? What happens if we're the only superpower left? I mean, it's a literal first world problem that Clinton and others are going to have to deal with, and we're still dealing with today. Bush Sr.'s biggest victory came in Kuwait. In 1990, Iraqi dictator and former Cold War ally Saddam Hussein invaded the oil-rich country of Kuwait. The U.S. and others feared that this could be a step toward conquering more oil-rich regions, especially in the Arabian Peninsula. So the U.S. formed a coalition to politely ask Saddam Hussein to withdraw his troops. Spoiler, he did not. So, in Operation Desert Storm, coalition forces, again, not just the United States, the U.S. plus a lot of allies, attacked the Iraqi forces, pushing them out of Kuwait in just 100 hours. There was a question of whether we should continue across the border into Iraq and depose Saddam Hussein, but Bush and his coalition refused. They had a clear objective, get the Iraqis out of Kuwait, and they did. 
Now, it's hard to learn about this event now and not think about Bush Jr. like finishing what his dad started by invading Iraq in 2003. But Bush Sr.'s decision to stay out of Iraq was a really important one for U.S. history because it ended this so-called Vietnam syndrome. Like, ever since Vietnam, the U.S. was essentially nervous to use too much direct military force for fear of getting bogged down in another decades-long conflict. By keeping the first Iraq war really limited and accomplishing a clear objective supported by our allies, he kind of broke the curse of Vietnam. And I'm not sure that's a good thing, considering the U.S. will now much more freely send troops around the world throughout the 90s. But again, that's a problem for Bill Clinton. The most dramatic moment within the United States happened in 1991, when Rodney King was brutally beaten by the LAPD. Ushering in a new era, the incident was captured by someone who had a home video camera, and it played on the news worldwide. Now, in the age of smartphones and an almost constant barrage of first-person footage of these types of abuses, it's kind of hard to understand how earth-shattering this moment was for many Americans to see police brutality so clearly on the TV. It's in the list alongside Emmett Till's open casket funeral, Bloody Sunday in Selma, and George Floyd's murder in 2020. George H.W. Bush was not especially well-equipped to handle the Rodney King case with sensitivity. His address to the nation in the wake of the not-guilty verdict for King's attackers was way more focused on the, quote, violence in our cities, lawlessness, and property damage. Sounds kind of familiar. If anything, the protests and then the riots that sprung from the trial just served as more evidence that the U.S. needed to be even tougher on crime, especially in the, quote, inner cities, read non-white areas of town. Ultimately, Bush Sr. became a one-term president because his own base just didn't show up for him in 1992. Libertarians and more far-right Republicans either stayed home, preferring his culture war primary challenger Pat Buchanan, or they voted for third-party candidate Ross Perot. The other Texas billionaire, right, who focused on the economy and dramatically cutting spending, siphoned off 19% of the vote. So in the end, the 1980s ended in 1992, when Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton won the presidency with 43% of the vote. That's right, we've got our first baby boomer in the White House. To be continued. Thanks for listening. Please share this episode with anyone else you think would find it interesting. If you want to support this podcast even further, go to patreon.com slash antisocial studies and follow me on Instagram and TikTok and I don't know, any of those other apps. I'm sure I'm there too. Thanks. Thanks.